Hi everyone, my name is Jolene Bonnie, and we've been doing a series through Exodus. It has been riveting. I love the book of Exodus and just seeing God's hand um, over his people and such a reminder um, of comfort. Um, there are warnings in it, there's life lessons, there's wisdom, and, and I found it a very rich book. And we're going to be ending off looking at Exodus chapter 32. But before we go there, I want to ask you a question. I'm not sure if you've ever had the privilege of traveling overseas. Um, I, when I travel, it's, and I don't do it loads, but when I have, um, I really feel proudly South African. Uh, representing our country, it's very unique, um, especially if you go to Europe, you'll meet a lot of people from Europe, from the USA, from Australia, not too many South Africans, so you feel quite unique and special. But something that makes me unproudly South African is something that I've seen a few times when I've gone overseas, and it's when there's connecting flights with South Africans on it. So if you're going from South Africa somewhere else, um, or if you're in the waiting lounge to come back um, from where you've been, and, and so you know you're with mostly South Africans, and something is this weird shift, and I'm not sure if you've ever seen this. I don't think it's coincidence that I've seen it a few times, um, so I'm sure this is a, a thing um, that South Africans do. But when, when I was on a connecting flight from Turkey to Greece, um, they called everyone up and they call you in sections to go onto the plane. And everyone really listens. They'll say row number one to ten. Um, or can the parents with children please come on first? Or, you know, those in wheelchairs. And they, they have this orderly way of doing things. Everyone listens and goes onto the plane in, in kind of in this order that's given. There's something strange that happens. On the flight back, where everyone's at the Turkish airport waiting to come back to Joburg or Cape Town, they call and they say, please wait your turn. And everyone just gets up and goes onto the plane and no one listens to these instructions. And out of principle, my husband and I sit there to the end waiting till I turn and we're the only ones left in the lounge. Um, now, I make a lot of other mistakes in life, but this is one of those where we just feel we're not going to budge and give our country a bad name. And I've always thought, what is it that makes South Africans not really want to listen to those very logical good instructions? And I think sometimes we're quite hard-headed, rebellious. Um, there is a little bit of this, I want the best for myself, a bit of greed. And, and it really, it has actually shamed me a little bit. I wonder what the, the ground staff must think as they call, they go, oh, here become South, the South Africans again. Um, so I'm not sure if this is a thing, but I have noted it a few times. And it's funny, we see this in the, in the nation of Israel, this human heart condition where there's this constant rebellion, yet God reaches out, he forgives them, and he continues with his plan. But it just seems like they just hit their heads over and over again. And we are going to take some of those principles and look at us as the church and believers, because we have that same condition, the human condition that makes us repeat mistakes over and over again. But I quickly want to do a bit of an overview of of where we at, if you're just starting to watch for the first time or listen, um, that, that there's basically two big chunks to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 verse 19 has to do with Israel's rescue from Egypt, um, the part that's really well known. If you've grown up in Sunday school, you've probably heard it from when you were small. And then the next few chapters, 20 to 40, has to do with relationship, God building this relationship with his covenant people. And the Israelites find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is in the early days. So you know they spend 40 years in the wilderness. Now we're dealing with the first few months 
in these chapters. God has given them the Ten Commandments. They know what this covenant is, and they've stepped into this covenant, and they've said, we actually agree to it. In chapter 24, Israel agrees with what God has said, and they say, we will follow God's ways. Then God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, and he says, Moses says he's going to be gone for 40 days, um, and he tells the people that in that time, they will have Aaron in command. And so that was his kind of out of office notice. I'm not here, but if there are any problems, go and find them. They're your people. Remember that Aaron was a high priest. He had been anointed by God for this. And so he had a priestly role in this community. And so you see that everything's set up um, for these people to be quite secure in God's presence, walking in his ways. But they're wanting a God that will go before them. They're wanting tangible, something tangible that will say, actually, our position is secure. You can understand that they're probably a little bit shell-shocked. They've left the security of Egypt, although it was a terrible security. They have left it and they're moving into a new place. They want to know that they're going to be okay. That's a human condition. We always want to know, well, is everything going to be okay? Can I have someone with flesh on? Because we must all admit it would be easier to to have someone with flesh on and push through in faith. And not only that, but you see how um, just later they're going to repeat this mistake. If you look at 1 Samuel, it reminded me of how um, the Israelites then wanted a king. And this became like the, the obsession and their request, and God gives them a king, and it brings so much unhappiness. So we sometimes think that if I could just have someone with flesh on, if I could just see with my own eyes, things would be good. It doesn't always equal that. In fact, it actually takes us away from the faith journey. In verse 2, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and he made it into an idol, cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods. Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What a lie. Those weren't the gods that brought them out of Egypt. In fact, those gods were more reminiscent of what was in Egypt. How could they have seen God's mighty hand in everything that had happened, but still be so confused and mixed up about who God really was? They went back to the last thing that was maybe secure for them, the things that they had seen, Even though the Egyptians, they were in slavery to them. It's so funny that they want to gravitate to the Egyptian symbols of strength and power and fertility. And so they build what is familiar to them because that makes them feel safe instead of worshipping the true God. Not only that, but they get their priest, Aaron, to do the, the building. He fashions this golden calf. He takes it. He calls for the gold and the silver when they've been clearly told that they shouldn't be worshipping gods made out of gold and silver. And you say, you crazy people, how could you be doing it? You're on the sidelines going, just stop, don't make this mistake. They want to honour this idol instead of honouring the almighty God. Let's move on to verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And by to the Lord, he means Yahweh. He's talking about the Yahweh that they've encountered. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. 
Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. You can see that Aaron's um, leadership wasn't an open rebellion. He wasn't trying to take them away from God. He got confused with them. He had his arm twisted. Um, who knows what his reasoning exactly was for, for the altar being built in front of this, this idol. But it was probably him thinking, I'm sincerely doing the right thing. We worship in Yahweh. And trying to bring kind of his beliefs together and, and kind of take a little bit from here, a little bit from there. It sounds familiar. You might know people that do that um, with God's word today even. It was a very dangerous place to put people in because that is sin. Sometimes those half-truths and mixing things with spirituality can be more toxic than blatant lies. And that's where we find ourselves. And they're doing and putting together worship that, that man desires and not the kind of worship that God desires. In fact, it gets so crazy and debauched that it lands up being um, what many commentators say is probably a, a full-blown orgy where, where there's sex and drunkenness and they actually become a joke to those around. While we're remembering once again, and I'm going to say it a lot, that just in the last two months they had actually heard the God of the universe, Yahweh, speak to them audibly. Audibly, sorry. Um, then in verse 7, then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. They would have been familiar with stiff-necked because sometimes oxen that just wouldn't move, and just how difficult it was to, to kind of move cattle that, that just are, are stiff-necked. Um, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may, may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Everything that they have done has violated God's holiness. But he still stops in that moment because God knows what's happening. Uh, we can never run from God. We can never hide from God. And he cares. He still cares enough about it. And, and in a sense, his holiness is being so violated that he can't just carry on with Moses, they actually have to stop right there. And he tells Moses about what's happening. Moses isn't down there yet. He doesn't know, but God tells him. And he actually gives Moses a very tempting offer. He says, Moses, I'll make your name great. I will, I will, I will wipe these people out. Let's rather just do something together and, and, and start a new line. And he says this to Moses. This isn't indicative of, of um, God just wanting, that's not his heart. He doesn't want to wipe these people out. He's chosen them for himself. Yet he's a holy God and he can't leave sin unpunished. He can't just let these people carry on worshipping idols and be okay with it. And it's kind of like, I think of it like a parenting act where, where all of a sudden, because he speaks about it to Moses and he says, your people. <laughs> it was always my people, now it's your people. It's like the parent who, you know, when your kids are being naughty, it's your child, the other parent. And, and when they're great, it's my child. It's just so amazing. <laughs> and it's kind of a bit like that. It's, you, you know, Moses, your people. <laughs> because there's nothing in it that God can relate to right there. Because he is so holy. 
He's so different. He's so separate. He's so perfect. He can't look on this imperfection and this idolatry and be okay with it. But then we see something interesting happening and we see Moses starting to, to be a sort of intercessor. This is what happens next. In verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you've brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and and it will be their inheritance forever. And so Moses isn't saying something that's not on God's heart. He's And that really is intercession, is is stepping in and agreeing and saying and calling into God's goodness and his grace and saying, Lord, look, your reputation's at stake. Please just preserve these people for your name's sake. We still want to make your name great. And so he appeals to God. And it really shows such a powerful picture of intercession that as we stand in the gap, we really start to tap into what's on God's heart. And as we go on, we read in verse 14, Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hands. Now it's Moses' time to get a little bit fed up with them. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burnt. Imagine transitioning from being in God's presence to being in almost the exact opposite and what he would have felt in that moment. He threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. These beautiful tablets that had literally God's handwriting on them. And he took the calf the people had made and burnt it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. What a picture as you would have seen these tablets that should have been so beautifully cherished and held onto, just shattered on the ground. And then this golden calf that they had produced burned to the ground. And there they are. And what he does is he is he, he makes them drink it. It's such an obscure thing. And I'm not sure of the exact reasons, but um, a few is that that you just see and it shows um, that that God's word um, needed to, to trump what was happening there. That what was happening in God's word needed to remain, whereas what was happening in the flesh um, with this idolatry needed to disappear completely and needed to be obliterated. The peoples that drank it, I'm not sure. I've never drunk gold that's been burnt to ash. Um, but but as they did it, it would have taken away every kind of ounce of evil that was there, any remembrance of it. 
and then you can make sure that that gold was never ever used again. It would be removed from their sight. There would never be that temptation to take that gold that would have been consecrated to essentially the devil and be used in any sort of worship for God or any fake worship again. And then in verse 21, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that led them into such great, that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. And all of a sudden, it's reminiscent of Genesis where, where Adam and Eve start speaking to God and going, wasn't me, you know, you know these people, like you know this is what happened, and and we start they start he starts scrambling for excuses. Verse 23, they said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold and jewelry, take it off, and now listen to this lie. Then they gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I mean, really, how dumb do you think Moses is? But the amazing thing, and just a sidebar life lesson from this, is that lying often accompanies great sins because we start to cover our tracks. It's so interesting that that the first sin was really built around a lie as Satan started to tempt. And we have to be so careful as believers that when we're stepping into untruth, when we're stepping into telling lies, that is often... The, the start of a downhill battle because we, we, we're just starting to step into things that aren't truth. God is a God of truth. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. This is in verse 25. So, um, and they were becoming the laughingstock of the enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Israelites, all the Levites rallied to him. And just a reminder that, that often sin is around in the world. And if you're not a believer and you, you're not in, in Christian community, sin is rife and people are okay with it. Funny enough, when believers sin, and you might have seen some of the, the recent news articles of, of Christians that have just stumbled and fallen, that have made the news, they really do become the laughing stock. There's something about when God's people step into sin and it becomes known to others how how unbelievers in the world just seems to love it and delight in it. And that's why just keeping ourselves holy and separate is so important. And in verse 27, then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses went back to the Lord and he said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sins. But if not, then block me out of your book, the book you have written. Moses makes an interesting attempt to atone for people's sins. We know that no human besides Jesus Christ will ever successfully be able to do it. But it is a picture of, 
of this Jesus who would come and he would be the worthy lamb that could be slain. But Moses is a feeble sacrifice, but he's starting to talk in this lingo and show what, what really is needed when sin abounds. The Lord replied, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot them out of my book. Now go lead the, pe- the people to the place I spoke of and my angel um, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck people with a plague because what they did, because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. You see, an interesting thing there is that although this was a corporate sin, it was a bunch of people um, who had got together, who had agreed, had twisted Aaron's arm, but in the end, people were punished as individuals, lives were lost. And people were taken out as a result of what they did. You can't hide in the masses of corporate sin and think it's okay and that you're going to get away from it. This is such a challenging, strange, slightly surreal story if you actually had to picture yourself in this situation. But there's so many great and rich challenges that we would be um, unwise to not learn from them. And so I'm going to be challenging us as a church on just a few of the points that have stood out to me. And in no particular order, but just big picture when I look at the story, what is God saying to us? What can we learn from his word? So as we look at the practical, I really think this is almost a devotional style as we take um, nuggets of truth out of these scriptures. And the first thing that I want to highlight is just how Um, As God's covenant people, we are called to be set apart and different. We so often want to crave what others have, not realizing that God has called us to really stand out. We often want a hybrid version of Christianity that takes the best of what the world has to offer and the best of what God has to offer, almost like that picture of the golden calf with the altar in front of it, um, representing the, the idols of Egypt and slavery with the freedom that God gives. Those two pictures don't go together. It is not what God has created us to be. He has called us to be separate. More and more, we are going to have to get used to to just standing out for what we believe, for sometimes being persecuted. In fact, the Bible talks about us being blessed when we face persecution because God knew that he was calling us to not blend in. That is why the Bible often speaks about these themes of of calling us out of something, out of this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You would be fooling yourself to think that anything the world has to offer is vaguely attractive or will bring happiness. Throughout Israel's history, we do well to learn how every time they stepped into sin, they stepped into such unhappiness. But when they chose to walk in the presence of God and choose his ways, just the blessing and the peace that they would know. God has called us to be separate. Then the next thing is that that let's not get fooled and caught in collective sin. There are things that as as a country we can believe together. There are things as a church that we can believe together as a life group, as um, ministries in the church. We can sometimes get into these little hubs of of people that think just like us. And we think that because we are with a bunch of believers and we all kind of align to the same sort of thing, a Christian political party, um, a Christian life group, a specific 
um, group that stands for something and we feel like because it's got the name Christian that that is the right thing to do. We need to start thinking for ourselves and weighing up carefully and don't be deceived into thinking that just because with you with a bunch of like-minded people that you're all in the right place because you have the name Christian. We need to constantly weigh up what is being said. There's always that danger to, to gravitate to people that think like us. You know, there's that whole kind of thought that as we, we Googling and the algorithms are, are kind of gearing towards our thinking that our thinking is getting challenged less and less. We as believers need to have our thinking caps on, the cap of discernment and wisdom and all these beautiful things that the Holy Spirit gives us. But you know what? It's sometimes easier just to go with the flow, even if it's just the Christian flow. Well, everyone in the church is doing this. I know a lot of Christians that think this is okay. That doesn't mean it's right. Let this be a warning to you. All the Israelites at that moment, um, within this context of the last two months, seeing God's mighty hand at work, they fell into such devastating idolatry. Let it be a warning to us. Then also the, the problem of sometimes listening to man's voice instead of God. Aaron had that. He, he had his arm twisted by what people wanted. Um, I find that tension, even just working in the church context, that it's often easier to give into what people want and need than going and being faithful to what God is calling us. There have been times I've looked at this community and go, well, what do people need here? Like, do they need, I don't know, comfort? Do they need um, joy? Do they need adventure? What is it? And we, we try and reach the, the community that way. And it's not about that. The most significant visions and missions that God has given me come from times of prayer and times in his word. Then we look at accountability and accountability for our actions. The Bible says he does not leave the guilty unpunished. When you stand in heaven one day, you're going to be accountable for your life. The people sin collectively, but they face wrath individually. We want to be in a place where as individuals we stand before God and we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You are living your life for that audience of one. It's you and God and you need to be looking into his eyes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his glory and grace, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus. Remember that there are beautiful corporate times of worship there. We're part of this church universal. We're part of different, all these amazing different Christian groups that we can be part of, but not to lose our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then there's an interesting one, and that's the fact that when Moses left, the people floundered. All of a sudden, because they didn't have this personal relationship with the living God, when he was taken away from them, they landed up coming up with all sorts of mumbo-jumbo for, for want of a mere word. And we have to be cautious that we don't become a leader focused church community and this I think is very relevant for us as we we face this transition of John and Terry leaving and moving on um, COVID has, has slowed some of the process down so we don't really know who our next leader is going to be we can so easily 
fall into this this a place of sin where we we flounder because we may be not owning our relationship with God for ourselves. If there's a little interim in between us having two pastors, senior pastors, senior leaders, that should be okay. Because as believers, it's about me and God and my relationship with Him. It could even be a time where our church is the strongest that it's ever been because we see people rising up and step into gaps that there might be. This is an exciting time for the church to rise up, and we need to be so cautious. I feel that one of the most devastating consequences of leaders falling, and we've seen it all around, I've referred to it, is that it shows us how how we sometimes put people on a pedestal. It is so unhealthy to have a leader on a pedestal instead of God. God is the one to be revered. If you are sick and some of the elders come to pray for you, the senior pastor isn't there, that is okay. That is wonderful. That is the church in action. If you're around and you tell your community group something and they all gather around and they support you and give you wisdom and use their gifts to encourage you, that is wonderful. That is the church in action. If you have a Christian sitting at a desk next to you at work and you share your heart and they encourage you and you pray for each other and support each other in the journey, that is that is the priesthood of all believers. But so often we, we want that person. We want the, the person with skin on. <laughs> you know, and we can sometimes mix that up with, with God and who God is. We love John dearly. We love Terry dearly. And they've had such an incredible role at being godly examples and not trying to put themselves in a pedestal. It's probably what I love the most about them. Um, and, and they've been such a blessing to this community because of that. They've just come and they've got... They've rolled their sleeves up and they've got their hands dirty and they've served. And so I think we need to continue in that way of going, we are the priests. We are God's hands and feet. We are the church. And so we will get another leader who will lead us and help to direct and and pastor us and, and be a shepherd. But God is head of the church and God is still on the throne. No matter if the transition takes a week, a month, a year, Um, God is going to be faithful in this season. Let's not be so leader-focused that we forget God. Impatience. Let's not be impatient. Once again, going back to the call process, why isn't this happening fast enough? What is happening? Why is there spanners in the work? Uh, like, oh, COVID's messed this up. I've had similar frustrations. If you're part of the, the Connect um, church body, you, you might have felt that too. Um, I think back to the marshmallow test. I'm not sure. I've got a feeling I mentioned it maybe and one of my other preachers, but that marshmallow test of, you know, when the parent puts a marshmallow on the table and they leave the child alone and they say, okay, I'm coming back. If you don't touch the marshmallow, you get two when I get back. And then they video the child and they, the child kind of moves around. They often will start to look at, touch a little piece off. And they're so bad at being impatient. They often say that you can gauge how successful a child's going to be. I'm not sure if it's true or not but how they, they have mastery of themselves. But I want to say that a fruit of the Spirit is self-control, it's patience, and we need to exercise those. The problem with the Israelites is they became impatient. They knew Moses was going away. They knew he was spending time with God, but they couldn't. They wanted that immediate reward versus waiting for God's best. We can apply that to to dating, waiting for the spouse, the perfect person that God has chosen for us. There's so many places where we can apply this, like God moving us into the next place. Maybe it's work-wise, life-wise, or just even with him, that we just want to rush through stages. God wants us to have patience and just wait for his perfect timing. 
then we also need to be reminded of the power of intercession and standing in the gap. Moses spoke to God on behalf of the people and asked him to save them. How many people are you interceding for? Who are you getting on your knees for and standing in the gap and saying, Lord, I know this person's here, but Lord, please be gracious, have mercy. It is in God's heart that we need to stand and agree. We can, we can partner with him. And I don't understand the beautiful mysteries of intercession because God doesn't change his mind. He's not a person. He doesn't have all these, these human qualities. And we always try and put it into human terms. But there's something so special about intercession where, where it does seem to move things along in the spiritual. And I can't answer it, but I know it's a privilege and I know it's something we should be pushing into. Then the the big challenge of worshipping idols, that we can be putting things in the place of God and worshipping them. We might not be doing it physically, but there might be so many areas of compromise, things that, that I don't want to give up, the things that I set in place that make me feel like I'm prospering, the things that make me feel like I'm getting closer to God. Um, I, I thank God a while back for, for our garden. I love having a garden. I love the fact that in lockdown I had a garden. But it's, it's a subtle thing because then it can be a, Lord, don't take my garden away, don't take my house away. And, and all of a sudden, something that's a beautiful tool for worshipping God can be idolatry. And so we just need to always walk that balance. And sometimes it's just a heart change. And sometimes something shifts away from God. We need to stay on track with God so that our eyes are on him and we're worshipping him with our whole hearts. Then one of the most beautiful pictures here is that if you do the maths and you can do to read the scriptures and work out that this is seems to almost to the exact day be the day that later would be Pentecost. If you go from Passover with the Israelites to where they found themselves with the idol and then what happened and the 3,000 who died, then you can look in the New Testament and you can look at when God sent his Holy Spirit. And on that day of Pentecost, the next Pentecost to come, 3,000 were saved. Isn't the way that God turns things around so beautiful that we move from this kingdom of darkness and what we should have deserved into this kingdom of light where we can experience mercy and grace? And so you think about it and you just think that, that God's mercy is on you every morning, that we're never beyond reaching out for God's grace, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible has so many rich promises that we can step into. But I love this image of what we should have experienced is death, but we can now step into life. What a privilege to be part of God's kingdom. So my challenge to you as we close is, what is your role in God's kingdom? What is it that you need to change? What has stood out to you in terms of your own life? If it's idolatry, maybe looking to leaders instead of God. If it's if it's just shifting your heart away from God, what is it that you need to change? And how do you need to position yourself to have that intimate relationship with God where you hear his Holy Spirit, where you know truth, where you can separate what's right and wrong, where you don't just go with the masses, where you, where you hear his still small voice saying, this is the way walk in it. As believers, we need to have wisdom. We should be having discernment. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. God's kingdom is so rich and powerful. And we need to be excited about the part that we have in it. God has called you to this church 
for his purposes. He's called you to his kingdom for his purposes. You are a royal priest. Don't be an Aaron who gets your arm twisted and falls into all sorts of sins and lies. We need to stand in the power of God. We are believers that can change the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the story that we have seen, Lord, not just a story, this, this historical account of how you worked, Lord. We want to be people that, that move with you and don't fall into people that, that fall for lies, Lord, that fall for um, having our arms twisted to worship and take our eyes off you, Lord, and worship other gods. We want to worship the God of all truth. You are truth. You are light, Lord. You are life. There's such richness in the kingdom, and we want to step into that. Lord, we pray for our church, for its future. Lord, we pray for the believers in our church. May we rise up as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people separate from God. Amen. Amen.